0: Welcome into ESPN senior writer Ramona Shelburne. Ramona, happy July Fourth to you.
1: How are you? Is it is it is this the is is this Kawhi the fourth? Is that what we're Kawhi going the, with now? That we've we've had like four or five days just just to make up plays on his name. Now is that
0: yeah? That's, where that, we're at? That's about where. That's exactly where it is. <laughs> but but it's almost a fifth, and and maybe we'll get um maybe we'll get a decision today. Uh, I think for the for the good of his. Maybe his closest NBA friend, Danny Green, he's got to make a decision so Danny Green can go take one of these contracts before they all dry up on him.
1: Right? I mean, it's kind of like the musical chairs. And then somebody really does get left out at the yeah, end of this.
0: Absolutely. Uh, but, Ramona, let's start with Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. Uh, his decision to leave Golden State, go to Brooklyn with Kyrie Irving. You have covered him as closely as anyone at our company uh, in Golden State certainly in Oklahoma City, but let me ask you this. At what point were the Warriors, did you start to feel like, oh, if you ever felt that way, that this partnership doesn't have staying power?
1: Uh, I would say at the beginning of this year. and. I was out on maternity leave, so it was kind of weird, right? (laughs) Like, I was still talking to people, but I wasn't around as much. But even in text message conversations, you know, people checking in on how the baby was, like, you could just tell something was going on there. And they came, I think one of the first games I actually went to um, when I came back was the game that he got into it with Draymond uh, against the Clippers, and I remember seeing Draymond afterwards in the hallway, like, and he acted like nothing happened, like it was, it was nothing to Draymond, but I, I feel like that um, crystallized what had really happened with the Warriors, like, and, and this is like November, I mean, so this is so early in this process, but um, I didn't understand the extent of it until I was around it and I saw it in person, and then, you know, it's just, it's like it's just like a bomb went off in the locker room, right? I mean, it was just, like, everything that had been beneath the surface and and people talking about behind closed doors, like, just erupted. And all the feelings were laid bare. And just the, I mean, I'm sure you have this experience, too. Like, there were people after that locker room incident that felt like Draymond Green was going to have to be traded. Like, they, yeah. you know, it was almost like they couldn't salvage the relationship with Kevin unless... Draymond was gone, but somehow they salvaged it for the season. They all—I guess the word I, I would come up with—is compartmentalized. It's like they just compartmentalized the issue with Kevin all year, but it—it it really felt like that just brought out what had been brewing.
0: You know, and I remember too—you you talk about that game where those two had that explosion in the locker room after, and mm-hmm. you know, Mark Spears and I started to hear that following morning that this had been something more than just. Your garden variety, couple guys heated in a game right. and move on. That was something more and that the Warriors were spending the day meeting about it and there were possible suspensions coming and I said, Hey, we, we've got to report on this thing differently. Like this isn't, mm-hmm. uh, just one, like there's a million of these happen in the course of a season. And I always say those are some of the most difficult ones. Which ones rise to the level of just a couple guys That's blown right. off steam for a few minutes. Or something bigger. And this one you just felt was something bigger. And I was across the country, and I felt it, and and starting to talk to people. I You know what it was for me, Ramona, was after they won the championship, after they won the championship in their first season together, when it didn't seem that Kevin had been fulfilled by that title, he started to clap back at people on social media, and he seemed he was defending that championship and defending still defending his decision to go there and I always thought that that was such a warning sign for will this experience fulfill him will it be what he wanted it to be for his career and what it meant for him and and that to me was the beginning of that of wondering does this does this arrangement is this just a one contract thing
1: yeah, and and I think also being around the team last year, there was this, um, there was another one of those explosions, but it wasn't. You know, this wasn't players going against players. It was. I remember being um, in Utah. It was the last game of the regular season last year, and the Warriors lost by like forty something points. Like it was maybe forty eight points. It was like a terrible game, and they had it. They went into the playoffs, and it was just being around the team last year. You just didn't feel like they had a lot of joy at all. It was just it was. Uh, uh, they, it was a kind of a job. It was, it was a slog. They were just getting through it. And even when they won, it was this sort of like we're winning because we're the best team and we have the most talent. But there wasn't a camaraderie or brotherhood like I'd seen because I've been around for the whole Warriors run. So I remember the first one, which was incredible. Everybody's you know crowning moment. And like the defining characteristic of those Warriors team was just the joy they played with. And and even Kevin's first year, I felt like there was. Um, and us against them, like I'll, I'll never forget being in Oklahoma City and it, on his return game, you know, whenever everyone showed up with the snakes and the cupcakes and the shirts and mm-hmm. and afterwards they, you know, they won and it really felt like they had his back. Like there was a real brotherhood there that first year and... They all delighted. Everyone was wearing the cupcake t-shirts afterwards. I remember catching Steph Curry and Draymond wearing those cupcake t-shirts, like just kind of taking ownership of that whole thing. And it felt like they had that bond there, but it was really just that first year, you know, and then last year they were, they were playing and they were, it was year three for all the Warriors and they were just getting through it. Um, and, and I remember that night in Utah talking to a bunch of Warrior staffers, coaches, executives, etc., you know, everyone involved and it just, it, they they didn't have it right and they they sort of won in spite of themselves um and then this whole year has just felt like they were getting through it again it was just compartmentalizing and I think it was a little better this year just maybe Draymond just kind of ripped the band-aid off and everything was out in the open and so everybody was kind of like just trying to enjoy the ride but I felt like all year he was leaving the only the only question actually the only part of me that thought he might stay was towards the end after he got hurt well, and there was a camaraderie there. It's
0: it's funny you say that because and you mentioned the cupcake shirts and the signs yeah. in Oklahoma City and you know and I had said after in the aftermath of that injury Kevin Durant now he paid what a price he paid to do it Whew. but yeah. he no one's ever going to call him a cupcake again and no one's ever going to question his toughness or what he did to come back and play with the injury and then suffering the uh, ruptured Achilles Answers all those things, and I think there was around the Warriors a sense of that this might be this might be an event that would start to push him back toward Mm -hmm. staying because the narrative had changed. The narrative of, and I think he wrestled with this, and it was almost like to me I compared it to like the, the the great player in baseball who came to the Yankees and. You know, and I'm not comparing. I'm not comparing Kevin Durant to A. Rod. I'm not. But it was Derek Jeter's team. He was always going to be the most popular player there. Just like Steph Steph Curry is the Warriors. Derek Derek Jeter, and whoever you bring in, you could bring in LeBron James there, and you brought Kevin Durant. It's it's and and but now all of a sudden, like there was a validation there of his time there and what he was willing to sacrifice. I think the question had I think part of the criticism that people had had of Kevin or whether it was a criticism or it was a fact was that he hadn't really sacrificed much of his game. They all sacrificed mm-hmm. their game when he came in and here comes Kevin who you know really sacrificed his body and and put his career on the line in that mm-hmm. moment and there would be this you know you thought maybe there's going to be this kinship with the fans there with his teammates and now it was going to go from being this And the way it was narrated was it was this front-running story. Kevin had come to a Mm -hmm. 72-win team, and he had jumped on this, and they won uh, two titles. He's the Finals MVP. But all of a sudden now, the Warriors become a comeback story. He and Clay Thompson become these dramatic Mm -hmm. comeback stories, and he goes from being the guy who jumped on board to the builder. And so by the time he plays again, two new teams would have won NBA championships, the Toronto Raptors, whoever wins next mm. year, right? And then now mm-hmm. it's – and I think there was a thought, well, maybe that will cause him to look twice. And, of course, with the injury and the Warriors could pay him much more. But um, all that, if you wanted to tell that story, if you wanted to look at it, and I think Kevin – I know he thought about all of this, and he and Rich Kleiman thought about what all that would look like. But I think you're right. I think mentally – he, I think he had already left – I don't want to say he had left the place i think he was present playing but i think his future either consciously or sub- subconsciously it seemed like his future was somewhere else
1: well you know what's interesting about kevin is that i, I just think that's his essential nature i remember i talked to him um was before they went back to oklahoma city the first time and um he was doing interviews with everyone right like we always had this this joke, you know, usually it's exciting when you get a player of his magnitude to give you a one-on-one, right? After after practice, you get somebody for ten minutes, and that's like that's a pretty big deal usually. But that first year, Kevin gave every it was like everyone got a one-on-one with Kevin, like whenever you wanted. And I think it was just I don't know if he was just trying to explain himself to everyone, if he was just getting to know all the media around there. Um, but or I think he just likes to talk. Also, I think he's a. He's a really um, he's a deep guy. He Likes to he, he's he connects when he talks to people. And I've, I've, I've you know been around him for a lot of his career. He's, he was like that in Oklahoma too. I would always get to talk to him. I'd go to a shoot around and we'd talk for ten minutes about just whatever afterwards. Anyway, we were in we were in Houston and he said you know we were talking about how he left Oklahoma City and and why he was in Golden State and he just said you know look I didn't I didn't get to do college. I can. I did a little while and then I left there and I didn't get to have the same experiences in college that most people do. Like I didn't get to go around Europe and go backpacking. I didn't get to go do all those normal things that people do when they're growing up. And I'm not afraid to admit that I'm still kind of looking for who I am, that I'm still finding myself. And I I found that's one of the things about Kevin that I always really like is that he's, he's sort of like a a real person, right? Like he's, he doesn't carry himself with that, that aura of celebrity invincibility, like, I mean, yeah, he has a, a few people around him. He's an entourage, I guess. But like, when I, I, went to his, um, the opening of the Durant Center this year, when he, when he talked to the, you know, mm-hmm. it was back in his hometown, I mean, he would stop and talk to people. And it's not, it wasn't just like a quick hello. Like he, he connects. And frankly, I find it really refreshing. And I, it's something I've always liked about him. But I, I also find it exhausting. Like, you know how that is, Woj, like people know you and they, they want to talk to you and, and and you try to be a nice person, but you can't give that much of yourself to everybody all the time. And, and whatever you and I experience on a daily basis, multiply that times a thousand if you're a player like Kevin Durant. But, like, he really does try to connect. And I think he gives a lot of himself all the time. And so it's for, you know, people always think about why is he so, you know... Engage with people on social media. Why is he so reactive, so sensitive? That's the word people use with him. I just think that's his essential nature. I just think that's Kevin. He's a, he's a real human being and he's kind of still looking for himself. And I, I actually think this trip to Brooklyn, I think this decision to go play with his, his friends is, I, is going to sound a little bit reductionist, but it's kind of age appropriate, right? right. Like, like the warrior guys are all kind of older and they're a little more, they're in a different stage of life. Like, you know, Draymond has, has a kid now and he's, he's engaged. And Steph's married obviously with three kids and Clay is on planet Clay, I guess is the right way to put that. But um, Andre's older, he's, you know, it's family and Kevin didn't really fit into that social group there. And, and I really do think that that's kind of part of it. He's just still kind of on his journey finding himself.
0: How do you imagine it will go with Kevin and Kyrie Irving together?
1: I mean, there are any number of choose-your-own-adventure doors here, right? <laughs> I mean, like, I, you know, if you are a cynic, you could argue that Kyrie Irving, who did not work and play well with a young team that had a nice culture in Boston, um, I mean, that team could could have some chemistry issues before Kevin ever sits foot on a court, <laughs> before he ever comes back. Um I I don't know. I really don't. I mean you're it, it's like Kevin's going to be gone a whole year. Is he even going to be there? Is yeah. he or is he going to be rehabbing in New York? Is he going to go to Germany? Is he gonna, I mean we don't like how how much are they even going to be together that whole first year? I, I, do you do you have any information on that? No. Do you, the plans there?
0: No, and I think uh I think there probably is a plan there yeah. of how they're going to do this and I would think he'd probably spend most of that time around New York. That's where you know I mm-hmm. think his Right. His doctors are there in the Nets. Yep. And, and I think there'll certainly be, you know, a partnership with the Nets and, and, and their doctors and rehabbing this and right. Kyrie's going to play the year. And what'll be interesting is I think having his own team seemed to be something that was important to him. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that was important to Kyrie Irving too. Uh, he, that was part of why he left Mm -hmm. Cleveland and, um, he had that in Boston. He just he didn't love Boston. He just didn't love something, something there. I don't, I don't necessarily mean the city, but but he wanted to come. I think part of it is, and you know, he'll speak to this. Uh, it's yep. soon here, I think. But <clears throat> I think part of it was he wanted to be back in New York, and that's the other thing. Like I remember being at a Nets Golden State game uh, early in the season in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and the Nets were were playing pretty well. Karis LeVert. I believe he hadn't been hurt yet. And uh, the Nets were very competitive, I think, with the Warriors. I think the Warriors mm-hmm. pulled away late. And I remember standing outside the locker room, in fact, with, with Rich Kleiman, and uh, he was waiting for Kevin. And at that time, the conversation was not really about the Nets. And mm-hmm. if it, this, there was this feeling of if Kevin left, he'd, he'd move toward the Knicks. And, and I remember talking to Rich then. We were just talking about the Nets that night and we were looking at, you know, the, the things, uh, you know, Sean Marks that might have just walked by in the hallway or something. And we, we're looking at the roster and the environment there and the players. And I remember Rich saying something. We, we're just we're really as an observer. I don't think so much as Kevin's business manager, but just uh-huh. as a basketball fan. He's a New York guy and he's a big St. John's guy and he, you know, he, he's an observer of New York basketball mm-hmm. and he said, you know, they feel like the, I remember I think he said something to me like, they feel like the mid-major that's breaking through that everybody feels mm-hmm. like you see the talent and, and, but it was sort of that feeling of, of like, yeah, the mid-major and that was Brooklyn. And I would have thought at the end of last season going into this year where you thought Brooklyn might be able to compete for the playoffs in the East, maybe, you know, maybe for mm-hmm. an eighth seed if they were. And you wouldn't have imagined they could pull it off with the injury to Levert and him being out so long. Yeah. But they did that at that time. If Brooklyn could have gotten meetings with Kawhi Leonard, Kevin yep. Durant, Kyrie Irving, like that, that would have been like tremendous progress for them. If if they would be invited to sit down with those players, be able to get at the table yep. with them. The last time, uh, when you know Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant's free agency in two thousand sixteen. The Nixon Lakers didn't get meetings, right. and, and and like the Nets, remember. right? And so, and all of a sudden, it goes from could the Nets get a meeting to they got them both.
1: So it's funny thinking about the Nets because I I always flash back on a couple of years ago when Sean first got the job, and he was a guy that I, I I think I had said hello to a few times, but I didn't know him all that well, and he they came through LA and, and I was just, you know, Hey, how are you? How, how's your team doing? What are you, who are you excited about? And he, he kind of was like, well, you we don't really have any draft picks and um, you know, we're really excited about Joe Harris. <laughs> like he was just trying to, <laughs> there wasn't, there wasn't much to say at that point. Like this was just like a couple of years ago. And it's, it's funny thinking about where they were a couple of years ago to getting Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and not just getting them, but getting them instead of the Knicks. Like, I, you know, I, I don't live in New York, but I feel like I speak New York. Like everybody thinks I'm from New York. Cause I talk really fast.
0: <laughs> I, <laughs> so, never, I never thought of that.
1: It's true. I, I say like, and you know, and whatever. So that I do have a Valley girl in me, but I, I talk really fast and people always think that's a New York thing. Um, I don't know, man. I just thought they were, I just thought Kevin was going to the Knicks all year and it's still kind of stunning to me that the, the Nets swooped in there and got him from the Knicks. And I, like, I, I don't know what's worse if you're the Knicks, like not to get them or not to get, like it would have been okay. Maybe it would have been okay if Kevin went back to, to Golden State. That would have been a disappointment. It's kind of the way the Clippers probably feel about Toronto. Like, okay, if, if, uh, if Kawhi Leonard goes back to Toronto, uh, you know, that's fine. They, they put their best foot forward. But the guy won a championship, what, what are you going to say? Um, right. But if the Lakers get him, it's so much bigger of a deal. Like, this is I, – I, I don't know how it feels to be the Knicks right now, but it, it can't be pleasant. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right? I mean, this is like – you didn't just not get them. You didn't just not fulfill what, you know, everyone thought you were going to fulfill. Y- your little brother across the river got him.
0: Well, you know, and it – it- It validates it, uh, Ramona the the move from new the move from New Jersey, from East Rutherford to Newark to Brooklyn. That I what I always wondered was, would it matter? Would it matter that they would it matter much more? I knew it. It had being in Brooklyn has more cachet than Mm -hmm. as Bob Ryan's famous line, the exit sixteen W Nets. And I live in Jersey, and I go by I go up and down the Turnpike. And I always think about Bob Ryan when I go by Exit 16W, (laughs) one of his great lines. And so the fact though that it could become a destination because you look at like attendance and local TV ratings. They have the best television team in the league. They've got Iron Eagle and Uh the ratings are low. There's just not this, there's not this big Nets fan base. But what you started to see in Brooklyn was people who appreciated like this year, how they play more and more. I would talk to people and you'd, you'd, anecdotally get it and you'd see it, wow, they were a fun team to watch. You liked the way they played the game. You liked the way Kenny coached them. You 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 saw the potential. They were fun to go by. Because like, it was always you'd buy a ticket for who was coming in the play, and, and all of a sudden people were starting to go see the Nets. And the fact that they could, they answered that question that I did, and it just shows, and you mentioned talking to Sean early on and the fact that, hey, we don't have draft picks and we don't really have any they didn't really inherit talent that they were gonna keep. They had Brook Lopez uh and Thaddeus Young, but they were gonna move them for assets and they moved I mean look at that. The two trades they had a hit. Jeez. They move Brook Lopez to get D'Angelo Russell and they resurrect Ooh. his career. They move Thaddeus Young to get the twentieth in the draft on draft night and they get Karis Levert who comes Ooh. off of two straight years of of foot injuries that ended his seasons at Michigan and there were a lot of questions. He, he was a lottery talent and they hit it on him and, and yep. two, two players who won in Russell, who became an all-star and Lavert, who I think is going to be an all-star more than once in his career. And hey, listen, I don't know if they get, do, do they get those free agents if D'Angelo Russell and if that team doesn't play the way they do and demand your attention and demand that you pay attention to them is as, as a serious suitor for you. I, I don't know. Like those players allowed them to sit at the table with those two and, and, and they did it. But I, I just think it's, it's remarkable. And, and the thing Sean and Kenny never did, they didn't talk about, they didn't make ex- excuses around their building. Like they, they would tell yeah. people there and they set the example of it. We're not going to complain about it. We're not going to whine. We don't have picks. We're not going to complain about what happened with Billy King as GM. And the fact that the picks were all gone. Like we're going to work every day and we're going to find ways. We're going to find Spencer Dinwiddie and Joe Harris, you know, essentially on the scrap heap. And, and we're going to bring those guys in. We're going to do our research on D'Angelo Russell and not have this, you know, everybody else had this judgment about him at 19 years old that was, that he was a washout and that he was not a leader. He wasn't a good kid. And they, they dug deeper than that and, you know, here it comes. Jared Allen getting drafting him in the twenties, yep. um, and so, and up and down the roster, they have some players who've yet to play a lot of minutes who are going to be good. So they showed the will those two had, the spirit of those two, and the way it impacted their program and the kind of people they brought in to it every day that that elevated the thing. All of a sudden, it puts you in position to be able to sit at the table with with. Kyrie and Kevin and, and those guys say, hey, this is a platform, this is a platform that can work for us.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, and it also it takes a little guts here because I know today is the day that the, the Nets absolutely win the press conference. They win the back pages of all the tabloids in New York, right? I mean, this is a great day for Brooklyn. Um, but it takes a little intestinal fortitude to sign up for this. Kyrie coming off what happened in, in Boston and then Kevin coming off a, a catastrophic Achilles injury. I mean, and, one of the things that I think became very clear to me in reporting on this is that the Knicks didn't have the stomach for that. I mean, they you know, they didn't they didn't want to max Kevin Durant. Jim Dolan, the owner, the whole week. I mean, you and I had been talking about that. Like we had been hearing this that that Dolan wasn't sure if he was going to do that, and and some of that I thought was chicken in the egg. Maybe he was afraid he wasn't they weren't going to get him anyway. So why would he do it? Um, but I really think a lot of this was just scar tissue. From Amari Stoudemire, from Joe Kim Noah, from the experiences they've had at giving big contracts to guys with a coming off a major injury or who have injury concerns, and the Knicks just didn't do it. and And I think that's that's that was strike one. Um, But I think maybe where they lost the whole game was in misreading the situation and how close Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving were. Like I I had heard all along, like. Kevin was going to make his own decision that you know he wasn't dependent on anybody else, and I, I still I think he did make his own decision, but I, I don't think you can under, understate how close that friendship he has with Kyrie Irving and especially DeAndre Jordan was. Um, and the Knicks, they decided they were out on Kyrie Irving kind of early, and it, it you know some of that is a chicken and the egg thing too. They yeah. were out because he was out.
0: I, I was saying okay. Kyrie Irving <laughs> you was, know? Out, was out on the Knicks. Yeah. yeah.
1: But they, but they kind of stopped and they, they made sort of a calculated decision of like, okay, you know, uh, Kevin. Is, sorry, the like Kyrie needs Kevin a lot more than Kevin needs Kyrie, and and they were wrong. Like those two wanted to play together, and I, I, I think if maybe if they would have slid somebody else in there, if they would have come up with the sort of second star for him to play with, somebody he got along with, some, a friend that would could help in recruiting him, I, you know, I. I think that might have that might have helped, but they, they just read it wrong. And well, and then they didn't have the stomach for it either.
0: Well, Ramona to me and I believed it at the time, I, I certainly believe it now. The impact trading Christapps Porzingis had on this organization and the fact that even when a new regime took over, that they didn't fix this relationship, that yep. they didn't do their part, Kristaps came to New York as a and I was there with him the first day he showed up. I remember sitting mm-hmm. in the back of a SUV with him, and it was a it was before it was before the draft. It was he didn't know he was going to play for the Knicks. He didn't know uh, it might even been before the draft lottery. And I'll never forget him kind of craning his neck, kind of looking out his window the way anyone does who's in New York City for the first time, and looking at the size of the buildings and and kind of. You know, mm-hmm. really being excited about it. And we went to lunch and I sat in an interview with him. And, you know, sometimes you do interviews with players at that age and they're not ready to have much of a conversation. Uh mm-hmm. it, It's hit and miss, you know, like anybody else. And he was so driven and determined to, A, really erase the idea that, hey, I'm one of these don't compare me to uh you know Darko Milicic or yep. Tiscovili from Denver like <laughs> like if you think I'm one of those guys you haven't done your homework you haven't watched me play you don't know mm-hmm. anything about me and i remember asking him what what he really what he imagined in the nba he was playing in spain and what he imagined what about the nba coming to the states most uh he was most looking forward to and sometimes you hear I mean, it could be rushed. It could be anything. The cities, yeah. and he said that, that that I can get into the gym. That that I'll have a key to wherever I play. I'm going to have a key to the gym, and I can get in any. There'll be somebody to let me in and let me play. It's not like that on my Euroleague team. Sometimes, like on Sunday nights, I can't get in the gym. And uh-huh. I said, "Boy, what, what? That that's a good answer, right?" And so, um, and he went from this very earnest, and I'm not putting it all on the Knicks. Like Chris Stapps is accountable for some of the behavior. That, that has gone on. It's mm-hmm. nobody else's fault but his own. But he was a player who wanted to be in the gym, wanted a professional environment. I mean, there were times during a Phil Jackson regime where he'd want to be, he'd be in there early in the morning ready to work out. And I was told his belongings wouldn't be on the cheer. You know, your uniform and oh. your practice gear is there. There was nobody in, wasn't always somebody in to work with him. Or, or as necessarily the, or like training staff wouldn't be there to tape him. There were instances where he was frustrated with just the basic professionalism of it during Phil's tenure. And, and that should have all changed. And, uh, the, the, the sides never got connected. And the fact that they had a trade, a player of his caliber, I don't care if you get 10 picks for him. You're not drafting another player with his talent.
1: Uh-huh. And
0: that has set them back so far that they finally had one, a player, that they could build around. I know it was a serious injury. There's no reason to believe he has been back on the court for months. You know, he probably could have played at the end of last season. There was no reason to throw him back out in the court. I mean, he was going full speed, and he's a remarkable talent. And the fact that they just gave him away now, he wanted out in the end, but it didn't mm-hmm. have to get to where it was. That guy loved playing in New York. He loved the city. He may love the city too much. And the city got the better of him too. Uh, but as a player, he showed he could handle the pressure. He knew he had some, he had that stretch there where like he was, they were winning and he was hitting big shots and the garden was electric with him. And, and they let, they walked away from all of that. And that to me, you could talk about missing on KD and Kyrie, but, but it wouldn't be catastrophic if that guy was doing what he was supposed to be doing this spring. Or this summer, and that was signing that five-year max contract.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, he, you know, you didn't need a second star if you you already had one, right? It's Porzingis, and I'll go all the way back to Phil Jackson days. Okay, and um, I remember when Phil, you know, was fired slash resigned. Okay, whatever we want to call it at this stage. Um, But I remember I was talking to Phil right around that same time, and. Um, it was it was like almost at the same time you know it was like literally concurrent and he was making plans to just recon just connect with Porzingis on a man to man level away from New York like he was thinking about flying out to Europe that summer just to meet him away from home on 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 Chris Depp's home turf so that they could bond so they could connect like he I think Phil understood how how that relationship between Porzingis and the Knicks had fractured. And I think one of the, one of the ways that I think it fractured and, and this is just going back in time that in a way that I don't, I don't know if anybody quite appreciated this, but he was, Porzingis was really caught in the middle between Phil Jackson's, uh, let's just say, kindly say mishandling of Carmelo. Okay. The, Mm -hmm. The, that, that battle between those two Porzingis was kind of caught in the middle of that and he had a tremendous amount of pressure on him to be this spokesperson for the team, but like not stand up to Melo, who the guys in the locker room really liked, but, but you know, whether or not they agreed with everything that happened with Melo or didn't happen or whatever you want to say, like Porzingis was just really young back then and I don't, I don't think he had any experience or, or to, to even know how to digest what was going on between Phil and the Knicks and Carmelo and, and, and the way that relationship fractured. And I think he kept getting asked about it and like, what's he supposed to say? He's like a rookie, He's a second year guy. What's he he just doesn't know what to say there. Yep. And, and I just think it got ugly and, and he was caught in the middle of that and he clearly wasn't the priority when he should have been the priority. Like you drafted the unicorn. You, you did it. You got the guy at number four. Like this, this should have been the guy. And like all your energy and resources should have been about Porzingis, but so much of the Knicks energy was just toxic in what had, what was going on with Melo.
0: Yeah, no, he, and and Ramona, he, he was such a perfect example of this earnest Mm -hmm. guy who became so cynical that Nick organization and, and starting with Dolan, it made him so cynical and Mm -hmm. you could see the change in him. He wasn't the same and all this positive energy he brought that place beats down people And it brings out the worst in people. And if they don't, if they can't change that organization until they change it, it starts at the top with Jim Dolan and the environment he has created. And it doesn't matter whether the GM is Donnie Walsh, uh, Glenn Grunwald, Scott Perry, that ownership dictates it. Like you, you talk to coaches in the league, general managers in the league, I think especially GMs, and when they say what when you're pursuing a job, evaluating a job, what's the most important criteria? And it's not geography, and it is not what the roster looks like, and it's not the weather, and it mm-hmm. is who is the owner. And, uh, and, and it doesn't matter that it's Madison Square Garden and the Knicks. Like, this, this comes from him. And, um, and, and this is, and, and look, look where the Knicks are right now, and where they've continued to be. Um, Kawhi Leonard, Ramona. We, by the time yeah. folks listen to this on,
1: yeah, we may have an answer <laughs> on
0: maybe. Friday morning. Maybe they will. Yeah. Um, the impact, if you're Kawhi Leonard right now and you're evaluating the three teams, uh, to me, what's there's such different decisions. I mean, two are in the same market, but they're diametrically different situations for you. And in Toronto, mm-hmm. you know exactly what it is. There's no mystery to it. He lived it. He won a championship there. They'd be a. Mm-hmm. I, I think at worst they'd be. I, they'd be a co favorite in the. I think they. I think they'd be the favorite to do it again, wouldn't they? With a healthy. I think. I thought in Toronto they felt there's a healthier version of Kawhi that will be back next year. Yeah, there'll be a more explosive version. Back. Yeah,
1: you know, um, and if People forget like OG and got hurt and missed the whole playoffs.
0: And, and if you are I mean, evaluating Ananobi. the future in Toronto, not just Pascal Siakam. But OG Ananobi is going to be, you know, a very good starter and you've seen growth with him and Fred Van Vliet, they have, um, they have some pieces to go around him when Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka and Marcus Saul are at an age where they're not, you know, they're not impact players or you may not, you may have moved on from them and by the end, Ooh. let's say how, maybe the end of what would be his next Contract, but if you're Kawhi Leonard right now, what's your evaluation of each place? What it delivers you?
1: Well, I mean, in Toronto, you have a brotherhood with the guys that you want a championship with. I mean, he, you know, he looked happy, right? Did he look like he was having fun with those guys? Like he, had, you know, he had, but, but by the end, them, and
0: I, and I think yeah. and I think there was a lot of feeling out among those yeah. players. And I think there was a sense early in the year. And I don't think he did much to push back on it early. Mm-hmm. That hey, I'm just passing through guys. And yeah. that changed and there became the group strengthened as they went on. And and they also they would they would win without him. Their record without him was outstanding. Yeah,
1: seventeen four. Right.
0: And they, they, right, they yeah. knew they had a really good they knew they had a and then and I think when Marcus Saul walked in when Masayu Jerry made that trade for Marcus mm-hmm. Saul, and think of how lucky they were I remember there was about 45 minutes left in a trade deadline when I found out that deal was done and reported it. And it was only Memphis had just really shut the door with Charlotte. Charlotte was really close yeah. to getting that deal for Gasol done. They didn't want to, I think a little bit more in, with, in terms of uh, what they would have put in the deal draft wise. And Memphis had a pivot and went back to Toronto and Masai got that deal done and, uh, changed their roster and, and, you know, Mark had an impact certainly for them in the playoffs, but I think when Marcus Gasol showed up, it was like, hey, we, like, let's, like, we've really got a chance here. And I think the group was, had been galvanized and become more galvanized mm-hmm. as the year went on. You're right. And, and they were, uh, you saw a real trust built, build that I think took time to build around him.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, the way Toronto is, run, is like a, it's like a corporation, and you have ownership, but it's, it's a really non-traditional ownership structure, right? There's like, they're owned by Maple Leaf Sports and, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. The, Larry Tannebaum's the, the acting owner, but he's, this isn't like Jim Dolan owning the team, this isn't like Genie Buss, or, it's just a, it's a, it's a Robert Sarver, whoever you want to come up with, right? These are, this is, it's, it's almost a, just a very corporate structure where, Masai has autonomy over his end of the business and Nick Nurse has autonomy over what he does. And then Alex McKechnie has autonomy over what he does in the sports and sports medicine department. And there's on the one hand, what they've done is they've, they've sort of run it like, OK, if we if, we, if Masai is not doing his job, he has to be publicly accountable for that. And if Nick Nurse isn't doing his job, he's accountable for that in the same way that you would be in a business. Right. Like it's not it it, it just feels very different than other organizations when you're when you're around it. Um, But I think the one thing that's really underrated is the the autonomy that Alex McKechnie has in running the sports medicine. And I mean, like whatever he says goes. This isn't Masai, you know, pushing him or or Nick Nurse saying what's going on. It, like Alex just comes in and says, "This is how we're doing this," and this is when Kawhi is playing. This I mean, he he came up with this. Whole, we we laugh now about this load management term, but like that, that's that's Alex McHety that he just he mm-hmm. he coined it. He's he's doing it, and and I think over the course of the year, like because you have this really business like approach there, um it. It, um, it just earned trust, and it, it didn't it didn't feel weird that Alex had all that power, right, that Alex really could put Kawhi in a completely different protocol than almost anybody else in the league. But he did it, and he just said, this is what's happening, and, and nobody questioned it. And I, I think um, one of the things Masai has done is, like, he looked at that team that had just, you know, flamed out in the playoffs uh, too many years in a row. He said, we're not good enough. So whether that means... Trading DeRozan, Kyle Lowry, trading, you know, switching Dwayne Casey and and Nick Nurse, like, they, his, his calculus was it, it's just not good enough. We're losing the playoffs, and I, I think if they wouldn't have won this year, if he doesn't swing that trade for Kawhi Leonard, I'm not so sure they don't tear that thing down. Uh, you know, they they, well, they, have they would year. have
0: absolutely torn this team down. There's no question. Right. That they and that's right.
1: Yeah. So, so like, if if you go from the the, the prospect of Completely tearing it down and building around—I I, I assume Siakam would be the guy you build around—to um, winning a championship. Like that's like—I'm a poker player, so I, I know how that feels. I mean, you just you just push all your chips in the middle of the table and like let's let's go. One last one last roll, and I, I think the player it almost takes all the pressure off. Like okay, hey, win or we're going to tear it down, or Kawhi's going to leave, or you know whatever it is. But this is our last you know roll at it. Uh, let's play a couple more hands, and that's it. I think it just felt they, that's why they felt so loose. I was when I was around that team, all especially in the in the finals. Like they just really felt like they were going for it. There was no pressure on them, and if they didn't do it, everybody kind of knew what that meant.
0: And, and I just think those guys looked around and saw Kawhi, and saw in big moment after big moment. <laughs> this is a guy who had done it his whole career, had done it in mm-hmm. San Antonio, uh, came awfully close to winning two titles there, back to back titles, and that they had a guy who could show them the way. And that's what I when Masai traded for him. You know, essentially he said to him. We none of us have won titles. You have show it like, like lead us there. Show us how to do it. And he did. The, the two LA teams, Ramona. To me, what's it's at so stake? To, to me, what's at stake for the Clippers is like to have somebody choose them over the Lakers, choose them over LeBron, choose them over mm-hmm. LeBron and AD. That if that doesn't happen. It is hard for them. They have done everything right since they reshaped this front office. They've done every, mm-hmm. they've made every right decision. They've done it like it's been textbook. It's been, um, it's, it's really respected around the league and, and what they may find out here if he, if Kawhi does go to the Lakers or now if he stays in Toronto, it's a different decision. Yeah, but if but they're head to head with the Lakers in a way that I can't remember ever really with a big player in free agency, Uh with a big player in free agency ever being head to head with them. Yeah, where and and if they don't get them, it's going to be harder for them to make the case of and and even the next one who might come down the line. Does the next great player want to be in the shadow of that Laker team? Like now, Kawhi could separate himself from and say, I'm going to do it the way I've always done it, which is built around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to be part of a super team. I'm the guy who beats super teams. That could be the decision he makes. Or he jumps on board with one and and is a part of it. But for the Clippers, it, it's a tough one for them, perception-wise, I think, to recover from. Like, they're never going to overtake the Lakers. You know this better than anybody. You live there, you work mm-hmm. it. The Lakers yeah. are the Lakers. and. If even if the even when Lob City was going and the Lakers weren't any good, it was well. What's wrong with the Lakers? Yeah, like
1: Chris Paul was getting booted Dodger yeah. games. Like he'd show up to a Dodger game and they'd be like, "Everybody, Chris Paul!" It was like right after the trade. I mean, like right after he came to L.A. at, "Boo! <laughs> oh my God! Like what guy just got here? Like." And I think I don't know if they were just bitter Laker fans because he was a Cl- he was a Laker for a minute before the, the trade got invalid. But they would boo Blake Griffin. They would, you know, it's just like the Clippers haven't won yet, and it, until they do, it's a Laker town, and it's just you know, it's kind of the I, I don't I don't think the Clippers have a problem with that. I think that's kind of their brand, right? Like they're the we're, they're the working team that just goes about their business and they they play hard. We don't tank. We you know we I I, I agree with you. It'd be harder for them to recover, and yet. I also feel like they actually still could be like a five seed next year, even if
0: that, they don't get him. That, that's right, but they but, <laughs> you but to know? Win, they this is a there's a blueprint there for the personality of the team they built, the head coach they have, mm-hmm. the owner they have who if you want to live in you know, if you wanna live in Southern California and live on the west coast and have that Steve Ballmer and have access to him for your career. Uh the personality of the star player who who has shown that all the things that the Laker platform offer may not appeal as much to him as they might to others, Mm -hmm. like there's a blueprint there where we'd say, boy, if they were ever going to get one, this would be the one they'd get. And if they don't get this one, who'd be – and I'm not talking – listen, they'll get a player 6 through 10 or 10 through 15 in the league, but those don't win you championships. they got a player who's 1 through 5, and the 1 through 5 guys are the ones that you you find the right pieces, you put them around, and and as Kawhi has shown twice now – you win a title with him.
1: I mean, I think it's it's that big of a swing. I mean, literally, like whatever team he chooses, you pick them as the favorite. <laughs> like, I think if he goes to the Clippers, you're like, yep, I'd, I'd pick them to win the West. I, I probably would. Would you? Uh, maybe, go, yeah. Maybe I'm not going to write off Golden State just yet. Utah looks really good. Houston, for all the dysfunction there, still has a a really good team, but but I'd probably pick the Clippers. (laughs) They'd probably be the favorites, and if if the Lakers get him, I'd pick the Lakers. It's just, he's that big of a player, but you know what, it's hard, what I feel like is so interesting with this decision is everything about this Lakers choice feels against type. It feels against character for Kawhi Leonard. Like, I I laughed at the idea that he would want to join forces with LeBron and be around and be on this purple and gold where you're going to have showtime and the and the just fishbowl right it's just an absolute circus around like last year even they weren't even good last year and I never even wanted to go in that locker room cuz it was so crowded and so nuts in there all the time like I'd rather just go to practice or talk to guys on the court or something like that cuz it was just so many people around, so much media, so much attention. I mean, yeah. that none, of, none of that profile fits Kawhi Leonard. And, right? like that doesn't feel like, and yet, and yet, I think you could make a case for it in the sense that he's proven that he's the dynasty killer. He's proven he can win without, he can win on his own. And maybe at this stage in his career where you're, maybe load management is yeah. what he needs to do going forward like this might be the right fit because it could be the all load management team, right? AD can be, they can all play 66 games a year.
0: Right. Right. (laughs) Well, well, it's going to be, it's going to to be a remarkable finish. I don't think we've had, um, we, we we've not had a free agency that I think was, I think especially having three teams, I think we've had some where guys are choosing among two. If indeed he's really serious about all three and maybe in his mind, there were only, listen. We, we we may find out later that he only seriously considered two of them, and we might yeah. be surprised at the two he uh, only Correct. considered. Yeah. So, but but he's but he's going to play for one. Um, Ramona, thank you for jumping in. I know I will see you uh, out west this week somewhere. Yeah, ESPYs, right? ESPYs, okay. right? yep. Ramona, th- <laughs> thanks for doing this as always. Yep, thanks, Adrian. Thanks to ESPN senior writer Ramona Shelburne for joining us here on the Woj Pod. Before we go. I just want to let you know about an exciting experience ESPN is offering to listeners of the Woj Pod, the MGM Resorts NBA Summer League package, where you'll get a once in a lifetime opportunity to get the first look at the rookie class and see the future superstars of the league. This experience gives you and a guest the chance to receive two tickets per day for three days to the 2020 NBA Summer League in Las Vegas, And access to the Budweiser's Legends Lounge, a premium VIP deck that overlooks the court and includes food and beverages, two tickets to a Las Vegas show at an MGM property, a meet and greet with an NBA and ESPN personality, and NBA Summer League merchandise, including t-shirts, polos, shoes, an opportunity to be recognized on air during a Summer League ESPN game broadcast, an on-court photo, and a back-of-the-house tour. All you have to do is visit ebay.com slash ESPN to see a long list of amazing, one-of-a-kind experiences like this one, the MGM Resorts NBA Summer League Package, a dream come true for any NBA fan anywhere, and especially for the WojPod listeners. 100% of the proceeds benefit the V Foundation for Cancer Research, and like Jimmy V once said, we'll never give up in the fight against cancer.